Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Just a reminder, we kicked off our Change for Change initiative, and we are encouraging people, if you've got one of those jars at home, I know i got a couple of jars here at the house that are collecting change. Actually, I've got a couple of places in my car that are collecting change. Bring that change to North Shore Vineyard, drop it in our Change for Change jar, and we're going to turn that money into school supplies for Pine View Middle School. We raised about 1800 bucks last summer, and that is was really a blessing to that school. So we'll be doing that the next couple of weeks. Today's message is entitled, The Idolatry of Ideology. We're looking at how sometimes our beliefs can actually become an idol and blind us to the things that truly matter. So let's head to North Shore Vineyard. Thanks for listening. This comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 9. Josh, are you trying to take all that AC back there? That's the spot to stand. If you get too hot, you can just stand back there in front of that unit. That one's working. This is John chapter 9. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed he was. Others said, No, he just looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. So they brought him to the Pharisees, this man who had been born blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes. The man replied, I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes that opened. And the man replied, He is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents said, he is of age, asked him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. 
Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at the man and said, you are this fellow's disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man, mar- the man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus had heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are you saying we're blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Lord, we just pray this morning that you would open our eyes, Lord, that where there are areas of blindness in our lives, Lord, you would cause us to see. In Jesus' name. This story starts out with a very interesting question. Jesus and his disciples are walking down the road, and they come upon a blind beggar by the side of the road, and the disciples ask a question that I think we have all asked at some point, whether it's about somebody else or about ourselves. Do you ever get into a point in your life where things get really tough? You, you know, you get a flat tire, you bounce a check, you have an issue at work, and it's just like one thing after another, and you start thinking, is God mad at me? Am I being punished? Anybody? I think that's, that's one of the most natural things to think. But they're applying it to this man who's been born blind, who's sitting by the side of the road. And this question reveals a ton about how they conceive of God and how they conceive of suffering. They offer Jesus two answers. Either this guy was born blind because his parents sinned, or he sinned. Now, this, this question also indicates that he would have had to sin in his mother's womb. That was actually a popular uh, idea at that time in Judaism, that you could actually sin in your mother's womb. Now, I've looked at the Ten Commandments. I don't know how you would steal or commit adultery or, or kill somebody in the mother's womb, but that was one of their thoughts. And as I was reading this, I was reminded of uh, an interview I heard recently. This, this was an interview on the Joe, Joe Rogan podcast from, actually it was back in 2014, but Joe Rogan was interviewing this biochemist scientist who, uh, really smart guy. He was a professor at Oxford for a few years. He's got over 100 you know, papers that have been published in scientific journals. Real smart dude. And if you're unfamiliar with Joe Rogan's podcast, it's this meandering conversation that oftentimes takes three or more hours. You know, It's just a two guys sitting, hanging out, talking. Well, at some point in the conversation, the subject of religion came up, and this guy said that he was a Christian. And Joe Rogan, who is not a Christian, who is an atheist, was like, wait, wait, you're a scientist. 
Aren't scientists supposed to be just, you know, all about a materialistic, naturalistic worldview? What, what do you mean you're a Christian? How, how did that happen? And this guy said, well, I wasn't always a Christian. He said, when I was a teenager, I decided to become an atheist. I said, I had no use for God. And through his, his ascent through academia, he maintained his atheism, but he kept bumping into questions and experiences that science couldn't even grapple with. Questions about consciousness and transcendence and spirituality, stuff that, that you, you, you can't or, or most scientists are not interested in. You know, stuff that doesn't work well in the scientific uh, model. And so, at one point, he ends up moving from England where he grew up and where he was a professor at Oxford to India. And he spent a few years working in India. He was part of a, a, an ashram. An ashram is just a, a religious community. Most ashrams in India are Hindu, but this particular one he was a part of was a, a Christian one. It was run by Benedictine monks. And while he was in India, he thought he would start pursuing spirituality, you know, just seeking something that, that could answer this longing in his soul for transcendence and some of these experience that, experiences that he was having. And India is a fantastic place to, to look through religions because they got everything over there. They got Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, Baha'i, uh, Islam, Christianity. You, got, you, can, you can search out anything. It's a, it's a veritable buffet of religion. And Eventually, he becomes a Christian, and Joe Rogan was like, well, why a Christian? I mean, it seems like the most natural thing, if you're in India, it would be to become a Hindu. And he says, well, I learned so much from Hinduism. There's so many truths that I learned. I really appreciate the way so many Hindus understand certain aspects of, 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 of life and everything. But he said, there's one thing that I couldn't get past, and it's this idea of karma, now, we typically think of karma as just like, you know, if you're a jerk to everybody, people are going to be a jerk to you. If, you know, you do bad things to people, it's going to come back on you. And that concept itself is not very different from the biblical concept of you reap what you sow, you know. Um, and, and this is a common idea in all the world religions. But where karma gets really destructive is, it, is at the core of this caste system in India. And the caste system in India is this very stratified social hierarchy that you're born into. So if you're fortunate enough to be born into the top rung of the ladder, man, you got all the options in life that you would ever want. You're, you're at the top. People at the top get to work certain jobs. They get certain privileges. They get to do whatever they want. But if you happen to be born at the, at the lowest caste, they call them the untouchables, your lot in life is you can only work certain kinds of jobs. And, and the way karma works into this is you're born into the low caste system or the high caste system because of what you did in your previous life. And so he said the way this actually works out on the ground is you'll often see some Hindus walking down the street. And if they see somebody that's suffering, they just ignore them. They don't even think twice because karma allows them to say, this dude's just being punished. Why interfere with karma? <laughs> but it simultaneously says, well, I'm walking around. I'm doing all right. I must have been a pretty good guy in my previous life. 
And he said he couldn't get around this idea of karma because he said he, he loved the pictures of Jesus that emerged from the Gospels because time and time again, Jesus doesn't respect whether somebody is rich or poor, whether they're a Jewish or a Gentile person, a man or a woman, whether they're a sinner or a saint. Jesus shows compassion to all people at all times. And when I look at this story, this question that the disciples are asking seems to be kind of like that question of karma. Who sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus is like, dude, it's got nothing to do with any of that. This right here is an opportunity for God's glory to be revealed. This right here is an opportunity for this man who has suffered his entire life being blind and destitute and living on the streets, waiting for the mercy of passersby, this is an opportunity for this man to be restored to health, to see. Because after all, it's not just blindness that's being cured here. When this guy gets to see, his whole world will open up. He'll have opportunities. He can be lifted out of poverty. He can work jobs. He can participate in communities in ways that he couldn't before. So Jesus does this miracle that seems a little weird to us. He spits in the dirt and makes some mud and puts it on this guy's eyes. Now, this may seem a little weird to us, but all throughout the Gospel of John, there are these parallels with the book of Genesis. In Genesis, God creates uh, you know, everything, you know, start, heavens and the earth, the plants, the animals, and all this stuff in the, in the first five days. But when he gets to the sixth day, it says he forms Adam out of the dirt and breathes life into him. This is another one of those parallels with Genesis. Jesus is putting mud on this guy. He's doing a, 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 a creative miracle. This guy goes and washes in the pool of Siloam, and sure enough, he can see. And if the story just stopped there, we would have a wonderful corrective on some of our bad theology, that not every bad thing that happens in life is God punishing someone or sin or the devil. It's just an opportunity for God to show his glory. But the story doesn't stop there. It takes this absurd, comedic term. <laughs> I mean, think about this. You would think that a person who's been blind their whole life, they can see. You'd think that everybody would be like, whoa, this is amazing. Let's get him on TV. Let's interview him. Let's celebrate this. Let's make those little viral videos that, that, that are inspirational that everybody passes on. But even the people in his own community don't seem that excited. They're questioning him, like, how did this happen? Probably because in their minds, they had already judged him as a sinner. Here's one thing. If you ever make a drastic change in your life, whether you're an alcoholic and you decide you want to be sober and you start going to AA, or maybe you decide to follow Jesus after being an atheist your whole life or whatever, if you ever make a drastic transformational change in your life, don't expect the people around you to go along with it. I know that was the case when I, I became a Christ follower at 20. Like, my friends were like, wait, you found Jesus? Ugh. I'm sure this is just a phase. And a couple of months later, they're like, wait, you're still doing this thing? <laughs> I know people who have, who have quit drugs or alcohol, but all their relationships have been around drinking, and they don't, have, they don't know how to even have relationships with anybody in their, in any of their friends without having alcohol. And that's one of the hardest things. If you're quitting alcohol, it's like, well, how do I talk to people anymore? <laughs> 
That's why a lot of times people who are trying to get sober, they go to AA every night of the week because they're, they're experiencing community. They're with people who value movement in a good direction, people who want to deal with the stuff on the inside and get free. This man's community is not celebrating. Instead, they take him in front of the Pharisees who interrogate him. They're, they're upset. They're not rejoicing that his, his life has been blessed and healed. They're interrogating this poor guy. <laughs> he thought it was going to get easier. <laughs> it's not getting easier. Well, how did this happen? Well, this guy, Jesus. You know, he, well, what do you think about Jesus? I think he's a prophet. Well, he can't be a prophet because he healed you on the Sabbath. He broke God's law. Eventually, this guy's like, why y'all keep asking me so many questions? Y'all want to become followers of this Jesus? <laughs> that doesn't go over well. He just says, look, all I know, all I know is I was blind, but now I see. And they run him out of there. You're a sinner. You've been a sinner from birth. We don't want to have anything to do with you. We don't care if you can see. And here's where we get to the, the interesting part of the story because Jesus finds this guy one day and he walks up to him and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Keep in mind, this guy's still never seen Jesus. He goes, show me the Son of Man so I can believe in him. He says, you're looking at him, dude. He says, I believe and he worshiped him. And Jesus makes this statement. He says, it is for judgment that I've come into the world that those who are blind will be made to see and those who see will be made blind. There's some Pharisees within earshot of this, and one of them pipes up, oh, so you're saying we're blind? No, if you were blind, you'd have an excuse. But the fact that you think you can see and you claim you can see, your guilt remains. See, the original theological question that this story starts off with is blindness connected to sin. And if you just read the first part, you think, no, no. You know, God doesn't give people blindness because of a sin issue. But the catch in this story is we do find there is a type of sin that will cause blindness. It's not the kind of blindness of your, your actual physical eyes failing. It is the blindness from idolatry of ideology. Idolatry of belief. You know, back in 1970, there was a book that came out called The Late Great Planet Earth, Hal Lindsey. And, and it, it latched onto this whole apocalyptic last days fever that, that was really a part of, you know, very much a core of a lot of the evangelical movement that was springing up. And I remember by the time I was a teenager, there was a book that came out called 88 Reasons That the Rapture Is Going to Happen in 1988. And then when that didn't happen in 1988, the guy came out with a book the next year that was like 89 reasons. And then, <laughs> and then one of the best-selling books of all times was like this Left Behind series. And people were all, you know, wondering like, when is the rapture going to happen? And who's the Antichrist? And what's the mark of the beast? And all these things. And people are speculating. And I have to admit, my first couple of years of being a Christian, I was like so into that. I would listen to AM radio, which is the worst place to get your theology. <laughs> And I was always trying to figure out, is it Gorbachev? Is it Prince Charles? Is it, you know? <laughs> I do believe, I do stand with, with Orthodox Christians for the last 2,000 years. I do believe Jesus is going to return at some point. How that looks, I'm agnostic. 
I don't know how it's going to look. And the reason I maintain agnosticism on a lot of these issues concerning the last days and the end of times is when I look in the Gospels, I see the people who had everything figured out, the ones who had devoted their lives to studying the Scripture and had this solidified worldview, uh, this, this re- theological worldview on, on how God was going to do everything. And when God shows up and is standing right in front of their face, they're blind to it. You hear me? No, I'm, I'm, I'm serious. I'm pretty agnostic on a lot of things in Christianity because I have seen. I mean, even with people who get into, you know, just end time stuff, I see sometimes people get so end times oriented that, that they make an idol out of their very theology. And here's what happens when you make an idol of your beliefs. If God shows up in a way that doesn't fit within your ideological framework, you're not going to see God. Or if you do see God, you're going to attribute what God is doing to evil. That's what they did to Jesus. They called him Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. They attributed the good that Jesus was doing to Satan. And guess what, folks? That can still happen today. I don't care how much you love, you know, you're, you're into the Bible. If we make an idol of our beliefs, if we worship our beliefs more than we worship God, we're in trouble. Psalm 115, the psalmist says, those who make idols will become like the idols they worship. They make these little statues of wood and stone. They've got eyes, ears, mouth, and nose. But they got no sense. They can't talk. They can't hear. They can't see. You worship an idol. What is idolatry? It is basically just worshiping anything in the creation instead of letting creation point you to the creator. I love nature. Nature is one of the places that I experience God so much. I, if, if I'm having a bad day or a bad week, I want to go out for a walk in the woods or go out to the lake or go out to the beach or go out to the mountains. I get to go to the mountains next week, and I'm so happy. <laughs> That's one of the places that I connect with God. But I don't mistake a tree for God. To me, when I look at the tree, it lifts my heart to the one who created this beautiful place. Idolatry is when we get stuck on anything in the creation, even ourselves. It's become quite popular these days to call ourselves gods. That's not a good thing, folks. That's the path to blindness. That's the path to blindness. You lose your sensitivity. You stop encountering God. You stop seeing people as people. See, the thing is with this blind guy, nobody actually sees him as a person. Do you notice that in this story? He's just a problem. He's just identified by blindness. As soon as you can point your finger and sum somebody up and categorize them, you don't have to see them as a human being anymore. But Jesus sees them as a human being created in the image of God and shows compassion and mercy on him. You know, back in 2005, there was this storm called Hurricane Katrina. Y'all remember that? And I remember the day before Katrina came into town, a friend of mine who had actually, him and his wife had been a part of my college, the college ministry I led over at SLU back in the 90s. 
and they were devout Christians. And my friend was down in New Orleans because he was supposed to be flying out to Virginia and, and his flight got canceled. So he spent the night with us and he needed a ride back home and we needed a place to stay. So we lived up in Kentwood. So we get in the, uh, we, we, we head out that Sunday morning, the day before Katrina, we go up to Kentwood and we're sitting there that evening watching the news or watching the weather channel, like everybody else in Louisiana and around the country. We're, we're watching where the storm track is going, you know. And my friend's wife said, well, she just kind of flippantly remarked, she goes, I guess New Orleans is finally going to get what's coming to it. God's finally going to judge that den of iniquity. Now, here's the deal. There was a time in my journey where I'd seen, said the very same things about New Orleans. It was actually when I wasn't living in New Orleans. But now that I was actually living <laughs> in the New Orleans area, I'd been there for a couple of years. This is my friends, my community. I couldn't make that statement just flippantly the way she had. But if it was bad the day before the storm hit, it was horrible in the, up, in the, in the weeks after the storm to hear well-known televangelists and Christian leaders get on TV and say, that storm was the judgment of God. It was horrible. Because I guarantee you, most of the people who were pointing their finger at judgment, they, they probably hadn't even spent any time in New Orleans. They're just looking at the craziness of Mardi Gras and stuff. Well, here's the deal. If God was judging New Orleans with, with a hurricane, he missed the French Quarter. Because... The French, <laughs> bad aim. <laughs> but here's the deal. That's one side that I saw during the storm. But the other side was beautiful, folks. Because within just a few days, uninvited teams began showing up from around the country. One of the first teams was a, a team from a, a vineyard up in, in Boise, Idaho, and they had all these relief supplies because they were preparing for, you know, they were, uh, they, they were like doomsday preppers. They were preparing back in, you know, for Y2K, and they had this whole warehouse full of chainsaws and stuff, and they were like, you know, ready to, to, to jump into action. So they came down, they started cutting trees, and the next thing we know, a couple days later, we got more teams coming in. They're gutting houses, you know, pulling up, moldy carpet and helping people sift through. We even had a, you know, we, we got minor flooding in our apartment. We had a crew show up and they moved us to our new place. And we saw people coming down and feeding meals and, and, and distributing relief supplies and praying with people. And this continued for three years. We had a relief camp right next to the church hosting teams. That's the Jesus stuff, folks. That's the Jesus stuff. It's not looking at something, suffering that somebody's going with, through and just saying, ah, you're finally getting what you deserve. Look, <laughs> none of us get what we deserve, thankfully. <laughs> if you were judged for every bad thing in your life, we'd all be a mess. We'd all be blind beggars by the side of the road. You know, back in the book of Genesis... We see that Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I think that is such a brilliant metaphor for the human condition. We are always trying to figure out good or evil. Good or evil. I'm, I'm really sad the way I see people these days questioning each other's motives. 
It's not just that what you're doing is bad. You're a bad person at your core. Good or evil. And we make tribes based on who agrees with us. And our tribe is in. You know, because here's the thing about the whole good and evil thing. It's always the other people that are evil. Right? We're always the good ones. I mean, that, that's what the Pharisees, they, like they, they were the good guys. They were the ones who devoted their life to studying the scriptures. They were serious about God. They weren't, you know, these compromising normal people that are just, you know, going about their business. No, we're serious. Seriously blind. Because there was another tree in the garden, the tree of life. And it's interesting, when you look at the book of Revelation, it, it, it compares Jesus to the tree of life. Look, we are all tempted to, to play this game of who's good and who's bad and point our finger. But the reality is we, we can't ever see a person. We don't know anybody's story. We don't know what it's like to be another person. We don't know why a person's in, in the situation they are. You know, somebody said this at the table the other night. We were actually talking about this passage, you know, talking about how, you know, when you're eating at a restaurant and maybe the service isn't up to par, how we feel so entitled, you know, like, this service wasn't very good. I'm not going to tip you anything. You don't know what your server's going through. I got to tell you, for years now, I try to leave a generous tip no matter where I go because I don't know what they're going through. I certainly don't want to be summed up on my worst days or my worst years, right? I'd like, if, if somebody's going to, going to judge me. I'd like to be judged by like the best day, you know, where I'm, I'm like, I'm like doing good. We only get a slice of people's lives and we can play this game of good or evil. We can question people's motives and you can drive yourself crazy because you're never going to know somebody's motives. You're never going to know. You can't read minds, folks. I know some of you think you're really good at it, but you can't read minds. Better to go for the tree of life. See the, see, the reality in this passage is there's a way to be blind. There is a sin that will blind us. That's our attachment to our ideology. That is making an idol of our beliefs, whether they're religious or political or scientific. But there is a way to see. And that way to see is following in the ways of Jesus because Jesus is the light of the world that illuminates our path. I think that's why, you know, we, we, we say this probably every weekend. I know, I know Shane even talked about this last weekend. That's why when Jesus simplifies it to, here's the commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, but what about the end times, man? What about the Antichrist? What about this theological issue? What about transubstantiation? What about predestination? You worry about these two things. It's not that these other questions don't matter. But so often we get entertained by these questions because they're a lot easier. It's a lot easier to play games in our mind than to actually do the hard work of loving the people that are right in front of us. But as you learn to love God and love the people that you come in contact, you become enlightened. You become awakened. You're living in a world where you can actually see rather than being blinded by your politics, your religious beliefs, your science beliefs, your philosophy. You're learning to truly live by the light of God. 
this story is an invitation into humility. It is just saying, Lord, I may have questions about why somebody ended up some way, but at the end of the day, Jesus said, don't judge, lest you be judged. There's one guy who can judge, and that's Jesus. Thankfully, I see how he judges. You know, when he's hanging on the cross, he says, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Thankfully, we have a merciful judge. Leave the judging to Jesus. But we need to follow in the example of Christ by the Spirit. This morning, we're going to close by receiving communion together. And, and, and even as we come to the table this morning, the way we do this, if you're new to North Shore Vineyard, we'll have a communion team up here. Somebody will take a piece of the bread symbolizing the body of Christ broken for us. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. I don't think Jesus was just saying break bread. I think he was saying be broken for one another. Jesus brings the cup out. He says, this is my blood shed for you, the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. As we come to this table, let us repent for the ways that we have made an idol of our beliefs, whether political or religious. Let us humbly receive the presence of Christ and let us commit to living in that light in the coming week. Why don't you all stand? Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. Feel free to come up in this next song. Everybody's welcome at the table. So come on. You don't, you're not required to though.